Hey, tennis fans, and welcome to Matchpoint Canada, the official podcast of Tennis Canada. I'm Ben Lewis, joined alongside Mike McIntyre. And uh, Mike, we're happy to be here uh, for our first episode of 2021, a season preview. And this week, we're uh, thrilled to welcome one of the foremost journalists in tennis. He's a correspondent for the New York Times. He's covered the Grand Slams since 1990. And we've had him here as a guest a few times and happy to have him back. Uh, please welcome Christopher Clary. Chris, thanks so much uh, for joining us on our first episode of 2021. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. I'm glad your guys' podcast is thriving. I was I came on in pretty early, if I recall, and you did. Done, done a nice job with it. It's been fun listening to it. That was the moment that everything took off for us, Chris, was after your <laughs> appearance, of course. I think it was Bianca Andrescu the week after that took you guys off, right? <laughs> well, maybe. Who's to say, really, right? <laughs> I wish that were true. But one way or the other, it's great to have you back. Um, you've been covering tennis for many years now, and and I'm sure you've gotten into a rhythm with how you pace yourself through a season and, and what the start of the year looks like in terms of how you plan out your travel and what tournaments you think you're going to be going to first and whatnot. How will the continued pandemic affect the way that uh, your coverage looks to start 2021? And how big a change is that to you, both uh, personally and professionally? Well, Mike, it's, a, it's an interesting question for me, especially this year, um, because it's really unusual because I'm actually on book leave right now for a couple of months. Um, I'm doing a book on Federer. And it's a uh, deal's already signed and I'm about halfway through it We're in the writing process. So it's been uh, pretty busy here at the Clary house. So I will not be at the Australian open, but I'm, I'm coming back on, uh, on duty in April. I'm following the game, obviously all along. I know for our paper, it's definitely a challenge because of the uh, situation in Australia. Very tough to get uh, people there, get people around the world in this early part of 2021. And for me, I'm, I'm planning on starting a normal schedule. If everything goes well, starting in the spring and, Obviously, Indian Wells, again, being postponed in this case, perhaps canceled. So it's, it's really a lot of upheaval for everybody. And, you know, a small time tennis journalist as well. It's the same situation. Everybody has to adjust. But the Australian thing is crazy because of the two week quarantine. They're asking people once they show up in Australia, you actually have to be locked in your hotel room for two weeks. Well, would you have been going to that if it weren't for, for working on the book? Uh, would you have been allowed to go? I would certainly have planned on going. We have, you know, right now, I think Karen Krauss, my colleague, will be covering for us at the Times. And I, from what I can tell, you know, they're going to have to sit through a two-week quarantine like everybody else who goes down there without, unlike the players who were able to train, you know, for a few hours and get out of their rooms, the, the rank and file do not. So it's a tricky thing for sure. Well, we'll have to come back to that, uh, that book you mentioned, obviously, a little bit later in the podcast, because I'm eager to hear more about that. But for right now and staying a little bit on topic, uh, what was the biggest positive that you took out of uh, the crazy year that we just wrapped up 2020 in terms of, you know, your tennis coverage? And, and what was the biggest challenge for you if you look back on the last 12 months? Well, I think it's interesting and reassuring in some ways to see that there actually was meaningful tennis played in 2020, because let's face it, it was certainly in doubt. Also reassuring to see that not too many tournaments, at least as of now, ended up folding or going out of business. We may have things and headlines coming our way in 2021, but it, overall, the, you know, the economic superstructure of the sport, I think, held pretty firm um, overall, which, to be honest, surprised me based on some of my reporting. And I think they got three of the four slams in. I wouldn't have probably guessed on that um, in the uh, mid-summer of 2020 that that would happen. So that, those are all positives. Obviously, the negative is that you know so few fans were on site, so many stresses on the sport. Um, and what was your other question, Mike, you asked the second part of it? No, that was it. Just the, the positives you took from last year and, and the challenges. And uh, 
I mean, it's funny for some people covering the sport, it, it definitely threw their regular routine out of whack. And, and Ben, I think you can agree for you and me, it actually allowed us the opportunity. You know, we don't have the opportunity to travel like, like you do right now at this point of our careers, but we were able to attend the US Open virtually and we'll be attending the Aussie Open as well virtually. So it actually allowed us something that we probably wouldn't have the chance to do otherwise, which is kind of, kind of weird. Yeah, I mean, I think we all would agree. You guys are players. Um, I also feel of having covered the sport for so long, nothing beats seeing the game live. You just have a much better vision of what's really happening on the court. You have the dimensions, you see the spins, you can sense the power differentials and speed differentials in a way you just still can't on TV. But certainly, you know, having some access to the players and having access to, you know, multiplex courts when you're covering it remotely, that's not that dissimilar from what happens at a Grand Slam in the first week when you're a journalist on site anyway. You know, Mike, to be honest, you're basically having to see an occasional match and watch a lot of the, you know, the cornucopia of tennis, you know, on your, on your desk screen because you need to cover all those courts. Yeah, yeah, certainly uh, for us, uh, the biggest loss in terms of that live tennis was missing out on, on both Rogers Cup in Toronto and Montreal. But uh, as you highlighted, I, I don't think we could have anticipated that we would still squeeze in three of the four Grand Slams. And uh, I think for tennis as a whole, Grand Slam tennis is the priority um, just to kind of delve into what to expect in 2021 and, and kind of starting on the men's side. Uh, we always have exciting storylines uh, every given year. And, and now, um, of course, Rafael Nadal and Roger Federer, who you mentioned that you're writing a book about, uh, they're tied even uh, for 20 slams apiece. I, I'm just curious, it, is that the biggest storyline to you on, on the men's side right now? Or, or is it maybe world number one Novak Djokovic uh, challenging that, that consecutive weeks record as well? Now, they're both, you know, in the history of the game. I mean, looking at the, the modern era of the ATP, uh, and the open era in tennis, it's they're huge. I was a bit surprised that, to be honest, Nadal's you know, matching Roger in Paris didn't make more of a stir in the sports world. I didn't sense it got way out of the tennis microcosm, and I was surprised by that. Maybe if he actually gets past Roger, it'll be a, something that'll break out more. It's a huge achievement, and obviously it's very clay court heavy, mm-hmm. but so what? I mean, Roger's won a whole bunch of Wimbledons too, and I feel like this what Rafa could achieve is, is momentous. And I think the fact that Novak is right on the verge and will almost certainly pass Roger for most weeks at number one is kind of a dual um, situation, if you will. And I think it shows that what Roger has inspired in his opposition and also shows that, uh, you know, the debate, the great debate we all know about is not over by any means. No, certainly not over. Uh, it continues and persists every year, but uh, we're, we're also looking for, for different storylines and different players. And, and finally last season, uh, we had that, at least at the Grand Slam stage. Dominic Team, of course, uh, winning his maiden Grand Slam title at the U.S. Open. Uh, do you have maybe, I, I don't want to say predictions, but uh, should, should we expect another name to possibly break through in 2021 in terms of uh, a slam trophy, whether it's a, a Zverev, Tsitsipas, Medvedev, or, or should we continue to expect that kind of big three stranglehold until someone truly takes it away? I don't expect that in 2021. I think you'll see some variety in the, in the winners as, as, as you did in 2020, as strange as it was. I think you have to look at the, um, you know, the body of work. Obviously, you can have bolts from the blue in tennis, like Gustavo Kirtan winning the French Open and without having, having won a tournament, things like that. But generally, you, get, you build up to these achievements. And I think looking at the hardcore results for Medvedev, you have to consider him the guy with the best chance of, uh, of having his first Grand Slam win and come in a hard court, obviously most likely, I would say, either Australia or the US. And in terms of clay court achievement, I mean, it wouldn't be a new winner, but it would be a new French Open champion. And Dominic Team certainly has 
shown that he has the game to win there. And I would love to see a match between, you know, him and Nadal with Dominic team super fresh, unlike having just won the U S open last in this last year. And that would be a real battle of Titans at the moment on clay. I'd love to see that match. So I think uh, personally, I guess based on that Medvedev or, and I'm a big sits of pass fan. I think he's got a wonderful game, all court player. He seems to really have that, uh, that drive and that charisma and desire to be great. And he showed me a lot at different times in the last two seasons. I really would be surprised if he doesn't win a few slams before he's done. And I think he has a chance to win some in 2021, or at least one, I'm sorry. Chris, you uh, really piqued my curiosity at the start of our interview when you mentioned you're in book mode or on, on book duty right now. So I don't know how much you can share at this point of the process, but uh, tell us, because I know our listeners are probably really eager to hear as well. What's the, the focus of the book? Uh, is it being done uh, independently from Roger with some input from Roger? Um, when can we expect to, to read this from you too? I appreciate the, the question. No, I mean, it's uh, it's not, as a New York Times writer, we're not allowed to write books with people. It's just uh, the way our company works. But it's had a tremendous amount of input from Roger over the years. I've interviewed him around 20 times over 20 years, interviewed most of the people in his world that have mattered for him, um, especially on the coaching side and the, the, the sort of the support side over many years. And I just feel like there have been some great books written about Roger already, you know, Renee Stouffer in Switzerland has done a nice job with his book over the years. Chris Bowers, British journalist, has written a lot about Roger too. I just felt like I have had a really, you know, very fortunate to have had an inside seat on his career for the last 20 years. And I wanted to take the chance to do that while interest was high and my memory was still <laughs> in place. <laughs> so I got a chance to write this book which with Hachette. Um, it's a worldwide deal and I, I'm really excited about doing it. And it's, uh, it's basically his career filtered through my experiences covering him and interviewing him and the people around him. What point of the writing process are you at? Just the, the beginning part? Have you got a lot down on paper yet? You know, I, I have not written too many books before, so I'm, I'm definitely making my way through it. I'm, I'm, I'd say I'm at the mid, midpoint of the writing. I'm on leave until April and uh, hopefully the book will be out at some point in 2021. Uh, hopefully, you know, in the end of the summer, that's our goal. And it's a, it's a great challenge because it's obviously a rich career and, and well you know, well-covered territory. And it's uh, also super pleasurable because so many great matches to look back on and, and a whole lot of uh, character development and tennis development. The challenge I would imagine might be where to end off the book since uh, it is still <laughs> open-ended. And, and on that note, what, what do you expect from Roger when he does return back to the court? How challenging do you think it's going to be for him? Because in my opinion, the ATP looks very different right now than what it looked like when he left, when him and Rafa and Novak really still did have a firm grasp on on the top of men's tennis. And now the names that, that Ben mentioned a few moments ago, it seems a lot more uh, open season out there. Yeah, I think it's a bit more open season. I mean, when Rogers didn't play the Australian Open last year, and you can see that the big three were a bit, you know, tottering a bit there with, you know, Roger had to fight through a lot and um, and Nadal didn't fight through a lot and, and Dominic Team almost beat Novak in the finals. So I think there's already some signs of change coming. Sissipas beat Roger in Australia, uh, as you know, a couple of years ago. I think, you know, Roger would not be coming back to play more tennis if he didn't believe he could still contend in the best of situations at a Grand Slam tournament. Obviously, Wimbledon, I think, is his best chance. Or if the U.S. Open stays quick, he'd have a shot there, potentially, although he hasn't had really great results there in a long time by his standards. But I think I think he'll be competitive. Do I think he'll win another Grand Slam tournament? I do not. Uh, certainly, there's just so many more obstacles to get through. Um, and it's, you know, he's... There are plenty of, of examples in our sports world and in tennis world of people excelling at that age now. I mean, Tom Brady is, what, 43 and just went around in the playoffs with his with Tampa Bay and looking pretty good. 
but he doesn't need to run quite as much as Roger needs to run from corner to corner. So I just feel like, you know, Roger's still a great player and he wouldn't be coming back if he didn't feel strong about uh, his possibilities. But I think the hurdles are pretty big now. Yeah, they uh, they certainly are. Well, I, I'm hopeful at least maybe Roger Federer's return will uh, coincide with uh, your your book wrapping up in in April. That would be nice to see. Uh, just just shifting over to the women's side, which is uh, of course a different landscape, and I, I think a very interesting one. Uh, looking back at Naomi Osaka, what she was able to do at the U.S. Open last summer is kind of the the standing memory for me in 2020. She of course has a, a powerful game on the court and a, a powerful voice off the court. I, I'm wondering, do you think she's she's ready to maybe te- take an even further step in 2021 and possibly solidify herself as as the best player in the world? Yeah, I think it's very likely she will solidify if she stays healthy. I mean, she's shown a lot of uh, up and down results in her young career. I mean, she basically you know fell off the map there after you know her good year in 20, 2019. She had a tough year in 2020 at the beginning. She didn't look good in the Australian Open, lost to Coco Goff. She's had some real roller coaster rides already. So it's not always easy to predict with her. She's got a high risk game, but if she's fit, got a great coach in her corner now with Lynn Cassette. And um, I think she's got uh, a real maturity about her. You can see it in the U S open, how she carried everything forward. However, and looking at the results, she's really just a hard court star for the moment. She has not done well on clay and has not done well on, on grass so far. So to me, to be the greatest player of your era, you got to be good on something besides one surface. So I think she has the capacity to be a fine grass court player. No doubt with that serve and, natural power, flat ball striking should be a natural for her, but she hasn't made that transition yet. I think it'll be really interesting year on women's side as it's been for several years now. And I think um, I'm really very interested. I'm sure you'll ask about this, but I'm particularly interested to watch Bianca Andrescu. Well, that's uh, where I was going to go next actually, uh, because uh, clearly here in Canada, this is the the tennis moment that we've all been waiting for. And it's almost going to be 16 months by the time she steps foot back on, on the court, which is just remarkable um, what she's had to go through. Um, what, what do you think Canadian fans should, should expect? Should they temper their expectations? Should they be believing that what was happening the last time she returned from a long layoff, which was to win the Rogers cup and, and us open back to back is a possibility to come back and, and be that dominant once again, uh, given what you've seen from her in the past and her style of game, which is somewhat unique, um, do, do you think that she can slide right back into top 10 form? You know, honestly, I think if anybody can do it, I think she could. It's because based on her track record of being able to you know, hit pretty uh, high notes pretty quickly in tennis. So she was obviously out for quite a lot of, of 2019 and uh, came back and, you know, won in Canada and, and won the U.S. Open and, didn't have a huge number of, you know, big time matches before she won Indian Wells. So I think she has this ability to go to a higher gear pretty quickly, but it really all depends on, I think two things are on her body. First and foremost, as it probably will for many years to come, you know, how much of a hit has she taken physically and how much has that affected her confidence and her ability to believe in her body when she needs to, in those very physical athletic matches and points. And I think um, also it's tough to be out this long. I mean, it can make you hungry, but it also can affect your confidence and, Bianca strikes me as somebody who has a lot of self-confidence and she has good reason in tennis to feel that way, but it's the margins are thin. And so if she's been knocked back a bit in those two departments, it wouldn't surprise me if it takes her a bit longer to come back and maybe 2022 is the year she hits her real cruising speed again, but she's a wonderful talent, all court player. I love to watch her play. Many of us do. And so I really believe in her if she can stay healthy. 
I'll uh, stick with the, the women here before I let Ben transition over the, the Canadian men, because we definitely have some questions there for you as well. Uh, you know, we're so fortunate in Canada, the way things have been going the last few years. And now it seems both on the men's side and the women's side, we've got some some depth emerging. Uh, how much do you know about Leila Annie Fernandez and uh, and what do you make of her rise into the top 100 last year? And and one other female player I'll ask you about is, is Jeannie Bouchard um, looked uh, a lot stronger to close out 2020 when a lot of people had ridden her off. Do you think she can still uh, make a go at being a top 100 player at this stage of her, her career, which she's only 26, almost 27 years old, I want to say, but it feels like she's been around a lot, a lot longer than that, maybe. Mm -hmm. no, that's true. It does feel like she's been around a long time. feels like Fernandez has been around a little longer, too, already, even though <laughs> she's still a teenager. Mm -hmm. I, I know. She's a very dynamic player, Fernandez. I've enjoyed watching her play. Obviously, being a lefty helps and um, very quick and a dynamic player. And I think she'll trouble a lot of players. It'll be interesting to see when she cycles around and people face her for the second time, third time, what they figure out and how they solve it. Um, doesn't have, you know, tremendous imposing power, but she's got this very lively game and able to take the ball early off the bounce and, and generate pace that way. So it's a harder way to make a living than if you have big, big shots, but I do, uh, I do feel she's a great competitor. You can see that already. And uh, I don't know how she'll hold up week to week. I know it looks like she's extremely fit. I watched a little bit of her early match this year or someplace where it was, I forget the other day and it looked like she was very fit. So I, I do like her chances. I think she looks to me like a, a very much a, a top 30 type player um, sooner than later. And as far as uh, Jeannie Bouchard goes, I was very surprised she didn't, uh, you know, stay a factor for longer after her, her great season. And um, obviously a lot of reasons for that, that she knows better than anybody, a lot of the mental, but her game is also low margin in that she hits the ball really flat, has to hit you know, the ball really, really early and take it with a lot of body weight to get any kind of pace on the ball. So it's a lot to ask as well with her. Some of these players can finish off shots and, and rallies with, you know, one swing of the racket, harder for her to do that. But she looked really, really, you know, in good shape, very fit, very strong, working with Gil Reyes, I think, out in Vegas. And I was impressed by her, her fortitude. But I don't necessarily see her having the kind of game where she's going to be able to go deep at slams in this era. I think the game has lifted in the last few years. Yeah, well, we're uh, we're still obviously thrilled to see some type of return. I think uh, last year we were discussing would would this kind of be the end of her career for Jeannie? Uh, how far her ranking had fallen, so her ranking had fallen. So uh, to see her back kind of in the mix and, and close to top 100 is is a nice sight. Obviously, different story on the men's side with a couple of our young guns who are in that top 20 mix, and we've seen Denis Shapovalov just get inside the top 10 before. We've seen six ATP finals from Felix Oje Aliassime. And we've seen a U.S. Open quarterfinal from from Dennis. Um, these two are obviously uh, exceptional talents on the court. Uh, both both have have their own strengths and weaknesses. We see so many highs at times from Dennis Shapovalov and lows. And, and Felix Ojealiasim, I think we're we're waiting for that first ATP title. Are, are these guys to, ready to take a, an additional step in 2021, where they're factors at a Grand Slam, or, or do they still have a ways to go in your eyes? I think this was a very important year for both of them. I mean, they're still quite young, 20 and 21. Um, but I feel like last year would have been frustrating in some ways for both of them, probably more for Felix than for Dennis, but for both in a way, because they barely had winning records, both of them, you know, for the season. You look at their overalls, obviously a weird year, hard to get in a rhythm. But, you know, Felix is a better player than that record that he had and better than his results at the majors as well. So I feel like Felix seems to me the kind of guy who, maybe needs more time to kind of get everything in place. He's looked mentally fragile a lot to me in matches, surprisingly so. And it seems like his, uh, his footwork and his forehand breaks down and obviously the serving issues he's had over time. 
So he needs to feel the confidence that he solved those issues under pressure and it may take longer than we think, but he's a tremendous talent. You know, the top players in the game will all tell you in private and public that he is. I think he's done some smart things about trying to get some, um, you know, mentoring from guys like Nadal and guys like Roger and getting a better sense of how they navigated some of this same period in their career. And frankly, you know, going back and looking at Roger's situation, not so dissimilar. I'm not saying that Felix will win 20 Grand Slam singles titles, but he's a guy. Oh, come who, on, Chris, you can say it now. <laughs> Brother Dicer on the, on the podcast. No, but I feel like, um, you know, he's a, he's a guy who, he has his ability. Obviously he's been in six finals. He should have won one by now. He hasn't, it's gotta be weighing on him. You know, we all can look at it and see the potential and think about how he should optimally manage it mentally, but it doesn't matter. You're in your own head and you know, it's frustrating and that's an obstacle and a barrier to get through. You almost feel like if he can solve the issues with a serve, he feels very confident on the second serve and he wins a title, like the floodgates could open. I'm not saying he'll dominate the game, but I think he really should be a top 10 talent based on what I've seen. And Shaf, Pavlov is one of my favorite players to watch. I think he's great for tennis, such a flashy player. So, you know, spectacular in the shot production. So the key for him is obviously what he's been working on for the last year and a half with Yuzny and others is to, you know, find out when he pulls the trigger, when he's able to make those choices that can decide a rally, when he uses all, tries to, tries to use all his gifts, you know, for good, not for evil. That's kind of the way it is. And I, I feel like both those guys, in some ways, even though Dennis had the nice U.S. Open run, I don't think he's happy with the way that ended. I think he saw a huge opportunity there and a lot of the rest of the season was pretty frustrating. So I feel like both those guys have got, should have a lot of motivation and they have a lot of upside. Chris, we, uh, we wanted to end with a note about a, a very special member of the tennis media contingency who unfortunately lost his battle with cancer this past week. Um, you described Tom Parada as a generous colleague, a driven and gifted sports writer, a proud family man and a friend of yours. Can you talk about how big a loss this is to the tennis world and also to you personally? Well, it's a huge loss, you know, on both those counts, Mike, you know, it's Tom's only 44 years old, married two young children. That's the most important thing. I mean, that's, that's a tragedy whenever that happens, obviously the world's been full of nasty news for the last year, but this room really hits home. Um, it wasn't COVID related. It was a brain tumor and he fought it for four years and uh, he was still covering slams and tennis tournaments and writing articles as long as he possibly could. And so I just saw a tremendous amount of courage from Tom um, in the latter stages of his life. It was pretty clear how things were going to turn out. He knew that. And um, I think it showed his passion for tennis and for his chosen profession that he chose to spend some of his precious time out on the circuit, you know, covering this crazy sport of ours. And um, I'll miss him terribly. He was a very talented guy. And he was, when he was, Competing with you on the beat, he worked for the Wall Street Journal. I worked for the New York Times. It's not exactly, you know, best buddies in terms of journalism. And he would, you know, fight for the story and try to get the scoop. And then you go out for dinner or lunch. And it was uh, once all the adrenaline had settled down, it was fantastic human moments and conversation. Very smart guy, very sensitive guy. And, you know, tennis is a poor place without him. And, and so is the planet. Yeah, well said. He seemed like uh, such a class act. And we were fortunate enough to have him on the podcast in previous years. And I, I didn't know him well, but when he walked into the media room, you just got this sense like, whoa, there's one of the there's one of the big guns of, of the tennis media world and uh, huge amounts of respect to him for for what he did and, and how he handled himself. And our our condolences out to him and his, uh, his family and, and his children, of course. Well said, Mike. Chris, Chris uh, uh, 
Yeah. Thank, uh, thank you so much uh, for, for joining us for our uh, 2021 season preview and uh, always appreciate your insights and always happy to have you on a, on our podcast. Uh, it's always a treat. Thank you, gentlemen. Hope your 2021 is better than everybody's 2020 was. <laughs> Thanks, Chris. Good luck with the book. And if it's not too much trouble, maybe a signed copy can make its way to Toronto somehow. Aha! Um, that would be a dream. Let's get it, let's get it done first. That's the key. Okay, good luck. <laughs> Thank you. There you have it. Christopher Clary, writer for the New York Times and international correspondent and always happy to have him on the podcast. You are listening to Matchpoint Canada, the official podcast of Tennis Canada, also members of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Follow us on Twitter at Matchpoint Can. We're also on Instagram at Matchpoint Canada. And, and Mike, we kind of glossed over some of those ATP storylines and WTA storylines. I figured we could go a, a bit deeper on some of the subjects um, in terms of Novak Djokovic, as as Chris, I think, illustrated, um, surpassing that consecutive week's record at number one, which is 310, feels like a given for Novak at this point, 300. And it feels like another marker that will just be added to his legacy is, of course, one of the all-time greats. And uh, I, I know his motivations are to be the greatest. I mean, who, who wouldn't be if you're in that position and you're the kind of competitor that, that he is, why wouldn't you want to have it all? Uh, I mean, what player would, would say, nah, you know what, not really interested in that one. I'm going to leave it aside. Maybe I'll take some time off or tank a couple tournaments. I mean, yeah, he's, he's going to want that one big time. Uh, his fans are super eager. You can feel that on, on Twitter and social media, of course. And uh, I mean, that one seems like a foregone conclusion. The other ones, and I mean, Chris Clary mentioned that uh, that he also believes that Djokovic will end up with more slams than than Federer. I'm not sure if he said more than Nadal, but, but more than Roger, that remains to be seen as well. You know, one thing in terms of what to expect from Novak this season, one thing in terms of what to expect from any tennis players in this season, as I think about it is who knows how 2021 is going to unfold and, and how people deal with the ongoing pandemic and the restrictions and the, uh, you know, all the things that people are trying to juggle, not even as tennis players, but just as, as, as regular human beings. I mean, you know, how do your, you know, safety concerns factor into things in your travel plans? How do, you know, you handle things if a member of your family, unfortunately, were to come down with, with COVID, or if you end up with, with COVID or COVID symptoms and have to take a step back? So, I mean, 2021 is, is sort of like how most of 2020 was, I think, which is a giant question mark. And I think as much as we expect some of these great players to just continue their dominating ways and their, their top level ways, they're dealing with a lot just like uh, the rest of us are. Yeah, I mean, we, we saw all those issues kind of rear their head uh, when we had tennis return in the summer and, and through the fall uh, COVID-19 issues. You could see how it affected, I, I think, certain players. In terms of the men's side, the name that comes to mind, you look the way uh, Gael Monfils, for example, was playing uh, before the hiatus. He was playing some of the best tennis of his career, felt like he was knocking on the door of uh, inside top eight and, and even better and just was not the same player uh, when the tour returned, I, I think. That type of player thrives off that crowd atmosphere. So we didn't see the same, see the same level from him. We saw other dips from other players. Um, and then we saw other players take advantage, I think, and, and come back stronger than ever. So you're right. All the question marks still exist. And uh, for me, going into the Australian Open, uh, it feels like the biggest question mark we've had in a while in terms of who could 
conceivably win this grand slam. We're so used to the domination of Novak Djokovic there. And uh, believe me, he will be the favorite again, but uh, Daniil Medvedev wrapping up 2020, winning the ATP finals, Rafael Nadal still playing great tennis, uh, Sasha Zverev, Tsitsipas making strides and, and Dominic Team was a finalist there as well. So I, I'd have to agree with Chris when he says we could see a more balance of power and different players win grand slams this year on the men's side. Yeah, and that's super exciting for me. And if you think about those moments where one tennis generation sort of gives way to the next, and I'm not saying we're quite there at the moment yet, but clearly we're getting closer. But, you know, as the Sampras's and Agassiz started to hang up their rackets and it moved into the Leighton Hewitts and Roger Federer's, um, you know, and, and Nadal, of course, as well. That was an exciting time because you, you didn't know who was going to, you know, right off the bat sort of grab it and go with it. Or would it be more of a, an even playing field with several different Grand Slam champions? Obviously, now 15, 20 years forward, we've seen what's transpired. But I am super excited to see where the Medvedev, Sissipas, uh, and Dominic teams, what, what they can do to build on last year, which was another big step forward for them. The U.S. Open obviously allowed for that. Um, I kind of take the French Open out of the equation because, because Nadal, right, for lack of, I don't have to go any more in detail there. Uh, but I am excited for the Aussie Open to see how it goes because last year's was such a tight five-setter between Novak and, and Dominic team. And, uh, and I think this year, again, we should probably see that trend continue uh, in the hardcourt tournaments and and who knows what to make if we get to the grass court season and hoping that the grass court season happens this year. Uh, but that could be pretty interesting as well. Yeah, could could be fascinating. And uh, one player, one Canadian player, obviously, uh, we didn't touch on him with uh, Chris, but should mention Milos Braunich. Uh, he's starting this season inside the top 15. I've been hopeful to see him uh, at Delray Beach as the top seed, but he did pull out of that tournament, as did uh, a number of other players. But uh if we look back to, to what he did at the Australian Open last year, and, and gosh, the Aussie Open from 2020 just feels like a decade ago to me. <laughs> feels like so long ago, but uh, he was a quarterfinalist there, and we saw terrific form from him as well uh, when the tour did return, making the finals of the Western and Southern Open. Uh, so given, provided that he is healthy and ready to go, I, I hope uh, that is the case, and, and it wasn't health-related that he pulled out of Delray Beach. He's another guy who I, I think when he is healthy, he's top 10 caliber player. Um, obviously, we're, we're looking for more steps of progress in terms of growing and development for Dennis and Felix. They're at a, a completely different age in their career. I think we're at that point with Milos. We, we kind of know what he is. Uh, so we're just really hoping on a healthy, consistent season. And if that exists, the form will, for the most part, be there. Yeah, look, with Milos, I mean, he's made quarterfinals or better at uh, five of the last six Australian Open. So that tells you all you need to know right there about what to expect from him uh, in 2021. Uh, the funny thing with Milos is, and I kind of get sucked into this sometimes, I don't know if you do as well, but we get so wrapped up in the young Canadians, right? The, the up and coming ones and, and wondering how good are they going to be, you know, Felix and Dennis. And, and when I say I get wrapped up into it, it's because my typical response is I still think Milos is our, is our number one guy when he's healthy uh, in terms of his, his ranking capabilities and in terms of his challenging at the hard court and, and hard court slams and at Wimbledon. But I get sucked into the hype that everyone else seems to have where they want to talk about the, the young up and coming players, uh, Dennis Felix, and then of course, Leilani and, and Bianca. And so I got to give myself a reminder, even though deep down, I still feel like Milos is, is our guy. I, I couldn't agree more. I, I think, uh, yeah, of course, you, you get sucked into that hype. 
Uh, we know how flashy and what a great shot maker Denis Shapovalov is. We know how ridic ridiculously athletic a Felix Ojealiasim is. And probably for those two, their peak level tennis, the ceiling might be higher. Um, but, you know, maybe my description of Milos when he's playing his best tennis could be beautifully boring, uh, beautifully boring tennis where he's hammering in 30 to 40 aces, completely controlling his serve and just putting pressure on his opponent that way. So, you know, it, it's not like the sexy tennis that maybe is making the highlight reels all day with these long exchanges of rallies, but it's because he's, he's dominating on his serve and staying healthy and just kind of quietly making a quarterfinal or a semifinal of a big event. I still like watching him play. Like I might be in the minority. I don't know, but I, 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 find, too. <laughs> I find his game like, you know, I don't know if I'd say sexy tennis. Have we ever said that on the podcast before? By well, the way? That's definitely a first. Okay. Maybe a last, but um, <laughs> I find his game super exciting to watch. I love when he's storming the net. I love when he's putting that kind of pressure on his opponents. Uh, I think he covers the ground super well for his size, for his frame. Uh, so I really enjoy watching Milos play in a way that I don't when I watch other big servers on the tour. So I think he's got a much more complete game than he often gets credit for. Um, I just thought up a poll that I think we, we should put on our Twitter, uh, you know, to start off the, the year here about Milos, which is what do you think could happen first? Milos getting back into the top 10 or Milos getting a haircut? That's a very good poll. Because man, that flow was really, <laughs> I don't know what had more momentum, his tennis game or his haircut last year. It was a, it was a close call between the yeah, two. Well, I, I know which answer I'm rooting for. I don't know if that's uh, that's going to be the case or not. We will have to see. Well, we'll shift over to the women's side, Mike. And uh, I did ask Chris about Naomi Osaka. And I think him and I are of the same belief that she can maybe take over this tour. Uh, just from what I see when she does play her best tennis, I believe she is the best player in the world. I, I don't, I mean, yeah, she's, she's got that capability. And I think if you look at her resume of work, her body of work from the past three years, she's, uh, she's the one who's, who's done the most. Um, she's won a slam in 2018, 2019, and, and 2020 three years in a row, which I had to stop and actually think about that. That's pretty amazing. And in this day and age of women's tennis, uh, I did a quick look back, so I may not be completely accurate here, although I think I am. She's the first female player to win slams in three consecutive years since uh, Serena Williams. Uh, Serena had a run between 2012 and, and 17 of winning slams in consecutive years. Uh, before that, I think, was Justine Hennen going back to winning slams between 2003 and, and 2007. So you know, Osaka's putting herself in some pretty exclusive company by virtue of the consistency she's shown uh, in the past few years. Uh, that being said, hasn't shown it so much on clay and, and the grass court season didn't even exist last year. So she didn't have the chance to show gains in that area. But uh, I see no reason why she couldn't put herself into uh, that, that fourth consecutive year by, by grabbing a slam at some point this season. And, uh, and that being said, I, I don't think that she's going to grab the tour by the way. I don't think there's any female player right now that is going to dominate and, uh, and take over the, the women's rankings or, or hold all the slams at once, like a Steffi Graf or a, a Serena slam. Uh, I just think the tour is so deep and there's such a slim margin between a lot of these top 10, top 20 players that we're going to see a lot of, uh, you know, revolving door, which is not a slight against the WTA. In fact, it's very much a compliment of the depth that they've got right now. Yeah, uh, I, I might even say that slim margin extends almost back to the top 50 at times uh, with, with the parity that we have. You, you look at uh, 
the, the strides that Iga Spiontek, of course, made last year. And I'd like to think with her talent, she should be able to, to jump into the top 10 for this season. Certainly a player that we will be watchful of. I, I don't think that's a scenario of like a Yelena Ostapenko, where it's a one slam type of wonder and then kind of doing a bit of a vanishing act in terms of form. I, I think Spiontek uh, is is hungry for much more. You know, we talked about the return of Bianca. Another player we have to be curious about still holds the number one ranking. We haven't seen Ashley Barty play in ages, dating back to the, the front end of the hiatus in February. She played just one tournament after the Australian Open, which she made the semifinals, and then played just one Premier Five, and of course did not return to play in the summer and fall, which was uh, her choice. I, I wonder where she's kind of fitting into the equation, making a, a difficult return into a, a tour, which is very deep, and a lot of players are going to, kind of try and find their footing in the early going. Yeah, it's interesting. I didn't realize it had been so long, but it's it's been almost a year for her as well, similar to Bianca, not quite as long, mind you. And it's uh, it's funny to me, the parallels actually between her and, and Bianca, because, um, I mean, Ashley Barty left the women's tour for a while. She, mm-hmm. she stepped away from tennis, uh, still doing a- athletic endeavors and, and played uh, professional was it cricket? I believe if memory serves correctly. And she came back to tennis and uh, I mean, she wasn't a top 10 presence right off the bat, but she, she definitely made herself, you know, a a part of the mix pretty quickly and, and, and came back to fine form. So I think, you know, she's another player like a Bianca who can step away from the game, come back to the game and still be, uh, you know, a force to, uh, to contend with. Um, And, and that being said, can she hold on to that number one ranking? I mean, it, it wouldn't have happened if it weren't for the fact that, uh, the ranking freeze occurred, and that's not her fault. But I am anxious to see her play. Not quite as anxious as I am to see Bianca get back to business. I was just going through some some old pictures of ours from the podcast and and all the photos that we snapped at the uh, Rogers Cup back in 2019. And can't wait to see that smiling face, you know, at the at the conclusion of a hard fought win. And uh, and really, I I have to say, there's nothing that's even coming close for me in 2021 in terms of what I'm most looking forward to than to see Bianca back on that court. I just want to note that uh, I I think throughout uh, the hiatus last year, and of course, going over a year, 15 months, uh, as you say, without seeing Bianca uh, playing, uh, we had a long stretch of time where, you know, we didn't hear from her at all. I I think in terms of Instagram usage, we didn't really have a sense of what she was up to. I mean, she would really sparingly use it. We didn't really have a a presence of her on Twitter. And of course, uh, for a long period of time, she wasn't conducting any interviews. And of course, we didn't get to see her when tennis returned. Over the last like three weeks, month, uh, specifically when she's gotten back to training and she's been on the court, she's had a much more active social media presence. And uh, not just kind of revealing to fans what she's been up to, but also fan engagement. Uh, she had a post just the other day on Twitter about like, who's a coffee addict, just like me, kind of having that uh, interaction with fans again. That, that tells me that she's, in a much better headspace, maybe not feeling down about the, the fact that you, the months are going on, you're not playing the sport that you love. I, I think she has this sense that she's back, she's ready to go, she's rearing to go, and uh, wants to, to let her fans know it. So I think that's honestly a great sign. Yeah, it's a good point, and I think that is a sign that uh, that she's nearing return to the game because, as you mentioned, when you're off and you know you're going to be off for a long time, probably the last thing you want to do is be engaging with people on social media who are then going to obviously follow up with the question, hey, when are we going to see you back at it? So uh, this is a sign that I think, you know, from a mental uh, perspective, 
mental preparation. She's ready to go. She's feeling good about it all. Uh, I don't know about you, though. I was a little bit worried in that one Instagram story where she was eating steak off like a sharp knife. And I think for someone who's so injury prone, I hate to say it, stay away. I was like, oh, don't go near it. You never know what could happen. That's right. But uh, she does seem really happy. And uh, she's had a, a long training block now uh, in, in Dubai. And, um, you know, we're looking forward to a month from now seeing her in action in, in Melbourne. And, uh, and, and I think she's at the right mindset where um, she's, she's going to be just absolutely ready to rock and, uh, and look super fit as well from all the training videos we've seen. Yeah, yeah, she looks uh, to be in great shape. And uh, for me, I think 2021 for the WTA side is is going to, again, represent a bit of a, a tug of war, I think, between newcomers and veterans, like our young superstars, Bianca, who will be back, Osaka trying to further kind of build on her career and maybe win more slams. Sophia Kennan, who of course was the WTA player of the year and uh, Arena Sabalenka comes to mind. She finished 2020 winning two consecutive tournaments. And then of course we still have the presence of Simona Halep, Victoria Azarenka, the way she played last year, Serena Williams still is capable of deep runs at grand slams. Your, your Carolina Pliskova's, your Muguruza's. It's kind of a fascinating dynamic and I'm not sure which side is winning that battle right now. Yeah, I don't know if you can pick one or the other, but but to go to the veteran side for a moment, I mean, Simona Halep, when you mentioned her name there, I'm like, holy smokes, there's a name I feel like I haven't heard of in such a very long time. Uh, and, and that's a legit top three player on the WTA that can do damage at any event. Uh, another one that I was sort of thinking of who you didn't mention, what about Madison Keys, who I guess falls into that veteran player sort of, I mean, really, if you're over 25, I guess you're a veteran player now on the, the women's tour. So she falls into that sort of... Um, you know, contingency. And uh, again, you just, any tournament we see on the WTA this year, I feel like from the get-go, from the opening round, you're going to get some awesome matchups, whether it's between up-and-comers, veteran players, uh, a mix of both. Uh, It's just, there's no weak draws. There's nowhere to hide on the WTA tour. No, there certainly is. And I should mention that we we have to have a fascination over what Coco Goff might do as well this year. Uh, she was playing in Abu Dhabi, did fall in second round action to Maria Sakari, but that's another player, of course, I will have have my eye on without a doubt. Should mention this is, uh, of course, a rare and unique uh, moment right now with Australian Open qualifying because it, it's not actually happening in Australia, uh, which is unusual. We have qualifying happening in Doha. And in Dubai, uh, which is very unique and strange also just to happen uh, more than a month in front of the actual tournament itself. But this is the way we have to manage things. And we have five Canadians in action. So there's plenty of action to follow. It's so strange for me. And it's really messing with, you know, when I normally think of Australian Open qualifying, okay, this is how many hours between Eastern time here in Toronto and Melbourne. And now we got to look not just between what, because they're two different time zones, right? Like Doha is eight hours ahead of us for the men's matches. Uh, Dubai is nine hours ahead for the women's matches. So you got to work out those differences. I'm going to screw up so many tweets. I got to apologize in advance on the Matchpoint Canada account. I'm going to screw up so many tweets in terms of what time matches are starting at. I'm probably going to wake up at the wrong hour in the middle of the night. It's going to mess up my sleep schedule. But in some ways, it's kind of like a progression because I only have to, you know, we only have to go eight or nine hours ahead right now to prepare us for a month from now in Melbourne, which is a 16 hour time difference, which is going to absolutely destroy us for that two week block. So maybe this is actually a nice thing to acclimatize the body and just kind of mess us up a little bit with our rhythm before we really get uh, hit with that uh, Melbourne time differential. 
Yeah, maybe we should uh, should be thankful for that. I'll, I'll just mention the names. Um, on the men's side, we have uh, Peter Polanski, Braden Schnur, Steven Diaz all competing, and uh, Jeannie Bouchard is competing and qualifying. And Rebecca Marino, uh, who I think out of the five is the name that is really standing out to me right now, who is competing, in just that we haven't seen her on a tennis court in a very, very long time. In fact, I, I'm not sure she played a match in 2020. No, she didn't play in 2020. The last time I was going through, because uh, it, it felt like forever and it's been quite a while, which is such a shame because she came back from that big hiatus from tennis and she was rock solid from the get-go. I mean, she was winning ITF events that looked like left, right and center. So strong uh, in terms of her return to the game after that absence. And then it was summer of 2019, I believe July of 2019, which was her last match. And, uh, and if memory serves correctly, she went to the Pan Am Games um, along with Jada, Jada Bowie, I believe, a young Canadian. Mm-hmm. But uh, Marino never played. She went there but wasn't able to play because of the foot injury. So um, really great to see her coming back uh, into action, uh, ranking protected, I guess, somewhere in the, the mid-300s, uh, early 300s. And so just great step in the right direction to get her back on the court. Uh, of course, Jeannie, we're excited to see what she can do after how she finished last year. And, you know, obviously by the time we post this episode, some of them unfortunately might not still be in contention. Um, But for Peter Polanski, I mean, he's made the round uh, first round at the Aussie open uh, three times, uh, 2009, 2017. And of course, 2018, the year that he was a lucky loser at, uh, at all of the grand slams. Uh, And for Braden Schnur, he'll be looking to get back on track. Um, You know, he was showing some promise a couple of years ago. And then last year, obviously for many players, hard to get any real rhythm, but, uh, He's uh, never made it past qualifying in his two previous attempts. So fingers crossed and, and best of luck to our, our Canadian crew that, that they can join the other ones who are already going to be in the main draw. Yeah. yeah, that's the hope. Uh, I, I think my eyes will really firmly also be on, on Steven Diaz. We had the, the privilege of speaking with him last year uh, when after 16 tries, he finally qualified for a main draw of the Grand Slam, doing so at the French Open. And uh, I had viewed him just uh, looking through his stats as a clay court player, but he... He told us that he loves playing both on clay and on hardcore. And I think he's playing some of the better tennis of his career uh, now closer to the age of 30. So maybe can gather a bit of momentum now that he has cracked a main draw to see if he can make it happen uh, at the Australian Open. In terms of action this week and, and upcoming, uh, we, we still have a Delray Beach Open right now. It's very rare that you're, you're speaking on a Sunday leading into a Monday and we don't have finals or maybe a tournament winner but we're really only at that round of 16 quarterfinal stage and uh in terms of the field a bit disappointing i, I think for canadians and maybe tennis at large a little bit we lost milos roundage master pospisil we expected to play but he pulled out then kenny shikori not there andy murray had initially taken a wild card he decided it wasn't safe to travel uh dan evans of, of britain also pulling out so it, it's a bit of an unusual field uh, but we do have John Isner in the mix. He's kind of the name that's standing out to me a little bit. Sam Query as well. Francis Tiafoe, a few of the better American players. Yeah, I think, as I mentioned before, 2021, it's going to be reasonable to expect that we might have a few more withdrawals just due to circumstances yeah. uh, around, the, around the world. And uh, I mean, I think to go to Delray and then get ready to go off to Melbourne was maybe a bit of a, a travel you know, nightmare logistically and and didn't maybe make sense for some of those players. So um, I was speaking with Blair Henley uh, yesterday, actually a friend of the podcast, Blair Henley, and, and asking her because she's at Delray Beach and nice to see her back to work uh, and doing what she does so well there with her on-court interviews and, and the off-court stuff that she puts together as well from a social media perspective. 
asked her if she had any insight into why Milos and, and Vashik decided not to play Delray. And, and all she could find out was, uh, was that it was personal reasons that they put down. So I think we'll probably see that a little bit more in 2021. And, uh, you know, if we find out anything, we'll, we'll let you know. But hoping to have those two guys um, ready to go for, uh, for the first slam of the year and, and hopefully some lead-up stuff as well. Yeah, yeah, certainly. Uh, as for the WTA side, Abu Dhabi Open, which we have uh, ongoing right, right now. Sophia Kennan is there. And, and the name, I, I think, before we start a recording, that's standing out to me is Arena Sabalenka, because I, I just feel like she is playing absolutely uh, fierce tennis right now. You look at the way she left off 2020, winning uh, the Linz Open, winning Ostrava, and now, uh, in a sense, picking up where she left off already with a few wins at this tournament and in the quarterfinals. Uh, Arena Sabalenka, I think, is is on my short list of maybe another player who could be ready to win a Grand Slam perhaps this year. Yeah, look, there are a few players in the top 10, top 20 that, you know, if by the end of their careers on the women's side, they don't have a slam, it, it won't necessarily surprise me. If Arena Sabalenka doesn't have a Grand Slam by the end of her career, I will be shocked uh, just given the amount of talent and firepower that she brings to the court. I was saying to you before we started recording, like at the Rogers Cup two years ago, it was scary standing next to one of those outer practice courts and seeing how hard she hits that tennis ball. So um, yeah, I'd be absolutely shocked if at some point she doesn't have that slam breakthrough. Uh, and one quick comment before we kind of wrap up here, but uh, on that Abu Dhabi tournament, uh, Sophia Kennan just uh, made it through, through uh, to the quarterfinals at, at present time that we're recording with a tough three set win over uh, Putin Seva. And that's nine consecutive wins for Kennan in matches that have gone three sets, which I think really just speaks to her resolve. And, and this is why we're seeing her have the success at the Grand Slams as well, because when she gets into a three set match, she clearly isn't concerned about being able to pull it out. Yeah, I, I think uh, mental fortitude, one of her strengths. Uh, that Australian Open final comes to mind, digging deep and coming back and beating Muguruza to capture her maiden Grand Slam title. So uh, that's a good stat to mention there. We should mention uh, we will have the privilege, uh, as you alluded to earlier, uh, of covering the Australian Open next month virtually. Our, for me, at least my second Grand Slam that I will have the fortune of covering, having uh, covered the U.S. Open last year. Uh, and just in terms of 2021 as a whole, I, I think for Matchpoint Canada, maybe we're we're looking forward to, to more engagement with our fans and listeners, perhaps more giveaways and, and just building a bit off uh, some of the fantastic guests and interviews we scored in, in 2020. Yeah, 2021 is going to be a good year for the podcast. And uh, and like you said, super pumped to cover the Australian Open. Like that is for sure a tournament I will not be able to get to in person until mm -hmm. I'm retired from my day job because there's just no way I can make it to Australia or at least until my kids are older. So uh, this will have to do and, and super excited to get some Canadian content uh, for you guys and uh, and be on top of all the action there and uh, and suffer through lack of sleep for two weeks as we typically do anyways getting up early to watch matches even when we're not officially covering the event so stick with us looking forward to lots of of good news on and off the tennis court this year and uh, and hope you're doing well hope you've had a good start to your new year to all our, our our listeners that you're safe that you're healthy that you're happy and uh that you're you know being kind to one another which is really i guess uh, you know the most important thing yeah certainly uh stay in touch with us uh tweet out to us if you have any questions comments drop a review as well on apple and uh you can engage with us on on instagram as well you've been listening to match point canada the official podcast of tennis canada we will talk to you next time <laughs>